0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of rotator cuff tears from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Impingement and rotator cuff disease are a continuum of disease, including subacromial impingement. Impingement and rotator cuff disease are a continuum of disease, including subacromial impingement, subcoracoid impingement, calcific tendinitis, rotator cuff arthropathy, and rotator cuff tears, which is what this episode will focus on. As far as the epidemiology of rotator cuff tears, in patients over the age of 60, 28% have a full thickness rotator cuff tear. In patients over the age of 70, 65% have a full thickness rotator cuff tear. Risk factors for rotator cuff tears include age, smoking, hypercholesterolemia, and a family history. With respect to pathophysiology of rotator cuff tears, mechanisms of tear include chronic degenerative tears, chronic impingement acute avulsion injuries, and iatrogenic injuries. Chronic degenerative tears, where the intrinsic degeneration is the primary etiology, are usually seen in older patients and usually involves the sit muscles or the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor, but may extend anteriorly to involve the superior margin of the subscapularis tendon in larger tears. Chronic impingement typically starts on the bursal surface or within the tendon. As far as acute avulsion injuries, Acute subscapularis tears are seen in younger patients following a fall. Acute sit tears are seen in patients over 40 years old with a shoulder dislocation. As far as acute avulsion injuries, acute subscapularis tears are seen in younger patients following a fall. Acute sit tears are seen in patients over 40 years old with a shoulder dislocation. And remember that full thickness rotator cuff tears need to be repaired in throwing athletes. Iatrogenic injuries are usually due to failure of surgical repair. They're often seen in repair failure of the subscapularis tendon following open anterior shoulder surgery. Associated conditions with rotator cuff tears include AC joint pathology, proximal biceps subluxation, proximal biceps tendinitis, and internal impingement, which is seen in overhead throwing athletes and is associated with partial thickness rotator cuff tears. Remember the deceleration phase of throwing leads to tensile forces and potential for rotator cuff tears. With respect to prognosis, 50% of asymptomatic tears become symptomatic in 2-3 to three years, and 50% of symptomatic full thickness tears progress at 2 years, and bigger tears progress faster. Now, let's talk about some relevant anatomy, and specifically, we'll discuss rotator cuff function, the rotator cuff footprint, rotator cuff histologic areas, rotator cuff blood supply, and certain anatomic features associated with the rotator cuff. With respect to rotator cuff function, the primary function of the rotator cuff is to provide dynamic stability by balancing the force couples about the glenohumeral joint in both the coronal and transverse plane. In the coronal plane, the inferior rotator cuff, that is the infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis, function to balance the superior moment created by the deltoid. In the transverse plane, the anterior cuff, that is the subscapularis, functions to balance the posterior moment created by the posterior cuff, that is the infraspinatus and teres minor. This maintains a stable fulcrum for glenohumeral motion. The goal of treatment in rotator cuff tears is to restore this equilibrium in all planes. With respect to the rotator cuff footprint, the supraspinatus inserts on the anterosuperior aspect of the greater tuberosity. As far as the medial lateral width at insertion, the supraspinatus is 12.7 mm, which covers the superior facet of the greater tuberosity. And remember, a 6-7 to mm tear corresponds to a 50% partial thickness tear. The medial lateral width of the infraspinatus is 13.4 mm, the subscapularis is 17.9 mm, and the teres minor is 13.9 mm. The distance between the articular cartilage to the medial footprint of the rotator cuff is 1.6-1.9 to mm. The AP dimension of the footprint is 20 millimeters, which corresponds to the insertion of the supraspinatus and anterior infraspinatus. With respect to the rotator cuff histologic areas, there are five layers. This is important because the articular side has only half the strength of the bursal side, which explains why most tears are articular sided. This is an important point to remember, so I'll say it again. The articular side of the rotator cuff has only half the strength of the bursal side, which explains why most tears are articular-sided. Now, let's go through the five layers. Layer 1 is the most superficial layer and is 1 mm thick and is composed of fibers from the coracohumeral ligament which extend posteriorly and obliquely. Layer two is composed of densely packed fibers that are parallel to the long axis of the tendon and is roughly three to five millimeters in thickness. Layer three is made up of smaller, loosely organized bundles of collagen at a 45 degree angle to the long axis of the tendon, and this is three millimeters thick. Layer four is made up of loose connective tissue as well as thick collagen bands, and this merges with fibers from the coracohumeral ligament. And layer five is the shoulder capsule, which is two millimeters thick. Moving on to the rotator cuff blood supply, this is largely from the subscapular, suprascapular, and humeral circumflex arteries with branching within layer 2 and layer 3. The bursal side is more vascular than the articular side, which is hypovascular, and the zone of critical hypovascularity is adjacent to the most lateral portion of the supraspinatus insertion. Anatomic features associated with the rotator cuff include the rotator interval, rotator crescent, and the rotator cable. The rotator interval includes the capsule, the superior glenohumeral ligament, and the coracohumeral ligament that bridge the gap between the supraspinatus and the subscapularis. The rotator crescent is a thin crescent-shaped sheet of rotator cuff comprising the distal portions of the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus insertions. The rotator cable is a thick bundle of fibers found at the avascular zone of the corcohumeral ligament running perpendicular to the supraspinatus fibers and spanning the insertions of the supra and infraspinatus tendons. As far as classification of rotator cuff tears, there's an anatomic classification, a classification based on cuff tear size, the Elman classification of partial thickness rotator cuff tears, the Goutelier cuff atrophy classification, and a classification based on cuff tear shape. The anatomic classification is broken down into two major types. Tears of the sit muscles or the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor, and the second type is subscapularis tears. Supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor tears make up the majority of tears. This is associated with subacromial impingement, and the mechanism is often a degenerative tear in an older patient or a shoulder dislocation in patients greater than 40 years old. With respect to subscapularis tears, new evidence suggests higher prevalence than previously thought. This is associated with subcoracoid impingement, and the mechanism is often an acute avulsion in a younger patient with a hyperabduction slash external rotation injury, or an iatrogenic injury due to failure of repair. Moving on to the classification based on cuff tear size, there are four major types, small, medium, large, and massive. Small tears are between zero to one centimeter, medium tears are between one to three centimeters, large tears are between three to five centimeters, and massive tears are greater than five centimeters, which involves multiple tendons. In the European classification, a massive tear is defined as involving two or more tendons. The Eltman classification of partial thickness rotator cuff tears is divided into three grades and three subgrades based on location. Grade one partial tears are less than three millimeters or less than 25% thickness. Grade 2 partial tears are 3 to 6 millimeters, or 25 to 50% thickness. Grade 3 partial tears are greater than 6 millimeters, or greater than 50% thickness. The three subgrades based on location are A, B, and C. A is articular-sided, B is bursal-sided, and C is intratendinous. Moving on to the cuff atrophy or gutelier classification, this is broken down into five types. Type 0 is normal, type 1 has some fatty streaks, Type 2 has more muscle than fat, type 3 has equal amounts fat and muscle, and type 4 has more fat than muscle. Finally, the classification based on cuff tear shape has four major types, crescent shaped tears, U-shaped tears, L-shaped tears, as well as massive and immobile tears. Crescent tears usually do not retract medially, are quite mobile in the medial to lateral direction, and can be repaired directly to bone with minimal tension. U-shaped tears have similar shape to crescent tears but extend further medially with the apex adjacent or medial to the rim of the glenoid. U-shaped tears must be repaired side to side using margin convergence first to avoid overwhelming tensile stress in the middle of the rotator cuff repair margin. L-shaped tears are similar to U-shaped tears except one of the leaves is more mobile than the other. Use margin convergence in the repair of L-shaped tears. Finally, massive and immobile tears may be U-shaped or longitudinal. These are difficult to repair and often requires an interval slide. As far as the presentation of rotator cuff tears, symptoms largely include pain and weakness. Pain is typically insidious in onset and exacerbated by overhead activities. There's also pain located in the deltoid region, and there may be night pain, which is a poor indicator for non-operative management. And remember, patients can have acute pain and weakness with a traumatic tear. Weakness in rotator cuff tears typically involves loss of active range of motion with greater or intact passive range of motion. Now let's do a quick overview of the physical exam of the rotator cuff. The supraspinatus may exhibit weakness to resisted elevation in the job position, which is basically 90 degrees of abduction with internal rotation. Other special tests for supraspinatus tears include the drop arm test and pain with the job test. On infraspinatus testing, you may find external rotation weakness at zero degrees of abduction. As far as special tests of the infraspinatus, the external rotation lag sign is the one to know. An infraspinatus tear will often manifest on exam by the external rotation lag sign in an externally rotated position at the shoulder, and the patient is unable to actively maintain this position after release. As far as Terry's minor testing, this may reveal external rotation weakness at 90 degrees of abduction and 90 degrees of external rotation. Special tests include the hornblower sign, and for this test, support the patient's arm abducted to 90 degrees in the scapular plane with the elbow flexed to 90 degrees. Then ask the patient to rotate the arm externally at 90 degrees against resistance. A positive sign is indicated by the inability to maintain the externally rotated position, and the arm drops back to neutral position. Finally, subscapularis testing may show internal rotation weakness at zero degrees of abduction. Special tests that may reveal a subscapularis tear include excessive passive external rotation, the belly press test, the liftoff sign, and an internal rotation lag sign. With respect to imaging of rotator cuff tears, radiographic views should include a true AP, an AP in internal-slash-external rotation, an axillary view, and an outlet view to assess the acromion. Findings may include calcific tendinitis, calcification in the coracohumeral ligament, and cystic changes in the greater tuberosity. Other findings may include proximal migration of the humerus seen with chronic rotator cuff tears, which are typically associated with an acromiohumeral interval of less than 7 millimeters, and you may also notice a type 3 or hooked acromion. An arthrogram is not commonly used in isolation, but is used when the MRI is contraindicated. As far as findings, a rotator cuff tear is present if dye leaks from the glenohumeral joint into the subacromial joint. An MR arthrogram may improve sensitivity and specificity. Keep in mind that an MR arthrogram may improve sensitivity and specificity. MRI is the diagnostic standard for rotator cuff pathology. Obtain one when suspicion for pain or weakness is attributable to a rotator cuff tear. As far as findings, it's important to evaluate muscle quality, which includes size, shape, and degree of retraction of the tear, as well as degree of muscle fatty atrophy, which is best seen on sagittal images. Medial biceps tendon subluxation is indicative of a subscapularis tear. A cyst in the humeral head on MRI is seen in almost all patients with chronic rotator cuff tears. The tangent sign is failure of the supraspinatus to cross a line drawn between the superior borders of the scapular spine and coracoid process on a sagittal MRI slice. With respect to sensitivity and specificity, in asymptomatic patients 60 years and older, 55% will have a rotator cuff tear. Ultrasound is indicated for suspicion of rotator cuff pathology and need for dynamic examination. Advantages of ultrasound include that it allows for dynamic testing, it's inexpensive, it's readily available at most centers, and it's helpful to confirm intraarticular injections. Disadvantages include that it's highly user dependent and there is limited ability to evaluate other intraarticular pathology. With respect to sensitivity/specificity, there is similar sensitivity, specificity, and overall accuracy for diagnosis of rotator cuff disease as compared to MRI. of asymptomatic patients had a rotator cuff tear on ultrasound in one series. Treatment of rotator cuff tears can be operative or non-operative. Treatment considerations include the activity and age of the patient, mechanism of the tear, meaning whether it's a degenerative or a traumatic avulsion, characteristics of the tear like size, depth, retraction, and muscle atrophy are taken into consideration, partial thickness tears versus complete tears, articular-sided or pasta lesions versus bursal-sided lesions, and remember that bursal-sided tears are treated more aggressively. Non-operative management includes physical therapy, NSAIDs, and subacromial corticosteroid injections. Non-operative management is the first line of treatment for most tears, and partial tears often can be managed with therapy. Non-operative management will include avoidance of overhead activities, Physical therapy with aggressive rotator cuff and scapular stabilizer strengthening over a three to six month treatment course and subacromial injections can be done if impingement is thought to be a major cause of symptoms. Operative options include subacromial decompression and rotator cuff debridement alone, rotator cuff repair whether arthroscopic or mini open, tendon transfer, and reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Subacromial decompression and rotator cuff debridement alone is indicated for select patients with a low-grade partial articular-sided rotator cuff tear. Rotator cuff repair, whether arthroscopic or mini-open, is indicated for acute full thickness tears. Bursal-sided tears greater than 3 millimeters or greater than 25% in depth. In these cases, you will release the remaining tendon and debride the degenerative tissue. Partial articular-sided tears greater than 50% can be treated with tear completion and repair, while partial articular-sided tears less than 50% can be treated with debridement alone. Pasta lesions with greater than 7 millimeters of an exposed bony footprint between the articular surface and intact tendon represents a significant or greater than 50% cuff tear. Remember, you must have at least 25% healthy bursal-sided tissue for a rotator cuff repair. Cuff repairs are also indicated for younger patients for acute traumatic tears. Remember to do an inside to repair in these patients and leave bursal-sided tissue intact. Older patients with degenerative tears typically undergo tendon release, debridement of degenerative tissue, and repair. Postoperatively, after a rotator cuff tear, remember that the rate-limiting step for recovery is biologic healing of the rotator cuff tendon to the greater tuberosity, which is believed to take 8 to 12 weeks peribursal tissue, and holes drilled in the greater tuberosity are a major source of vascularity to the repaired rotator cuff. Remember that vascularity can increase with exercise. Post-op patients should have limited passive range of motion and no active range of motion. As far as outcomes, workers' compensation patients report the worst outcomes with respect to higher post-op disability and lower patient satisfaction. Another operative option is a tendon transfer, which is indicated for massive cuff tears, Techniques include a pectoralis major transfer and a latissimus dorsi transfer, which is best for irreparable posterosuperior tears with an intact subscapularis. A reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is indicated for a massive cuff tear with glenohumeral arthritis and an intact deltoid. Now, let's talk about some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. A mini open rotator cuff repair once was the gold standard, but has been largely replaced by arthroscopic techniques. As far as the approach, a small horizontal variant of a shoulder lateral or deltoid splitting approach is carried out. The advantages of a mini open approach over an open approach is that there is decreased risk of deltoid avulsion and there is faster rehabilitation as you do not need to protect the deltoid repair. With a mini open rotator cuff repair, you may begin passive range of motion immediately to prevent adhesive capsulitis, and most surgeons will wait approximately six weeks before initiating active range of motion. With respect to arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, as far as advantages, studies now show equivalent results to open or mini open repair. Important concepts to keep in mind include margin convergence, anterior interval slide, posterior interval slide, subscapularis repair, long head of the biceps repair, footprint restoration, and coracoacromial ligament release. Margin convergence has been shown to decrease strain on the lateral margin in U shaped tears. An anterior interval slide releases the supraspinatus from the rotator interval effectively incising the coracohumeral ligament. This increases the mobility of the supraspinatus and allows it to be fixed to the lateral footprint. A posterior interval slide releases the supraspinatus from the infraspinatus. This further increases the mobility of the supraspinatus and allows it to be fixed to the lateral footprint, then repair the supraspinatus to the infraspinatus with margin convergence. With respect to subscapularis repair, although arthroscopic repair is technically challenging, new studies show superior outcomes as far as motion and pain compared to open repair. In a subscapularis repair, you will stabilize the biceps tendon with a tenodesis, and remember that the superior lateral margin of the subscapularis is identified by the quote comma sign, which is the superior glenohumeral and coracohumeral ligaments attaching to the subscapularis tendon. With respect to a long head-biceps tendon repair, most studies show negligible difference between tenotomy versus tenodesis after concurrent rotator cuff repair. As far as footprint restoration, it's hypothesized that a larger footprint will improve healing and the mechanical strength of the rotator cuff repair. Double row suture techniques, that is mattress sutures in the medial row and then simple sutures in the lateral row have been shown to create a more anatomic repair of the footprint. Remember there is a lower retail rate of a double row repair compared with a single row. However, there is no difference in functional score, pain score, and time to healing compared to a single row. Remember that the addition of a trough in the greater tuberosity to allow a tendon to cancellous bone interface as opposed to a tendon to cortical bone interface has not been shown to increase repair strength in animal models. Finally, with respect to cortical acromial ligament release, Release leads to an increased anterior-slash-inferior translation of the glenohumeral joint. Finally, tendon transfer is indicated for massive and irreparable rotator cuff tears. A pectoralis major transfer is indicated in chronic subscapularis tears. Transferring the pectoralis major under the conjoined tendon more closely replicates the vector forces of the native subscapularis. Pec major transfers require 4-6 to weeks of rigid immobilization postoperatively. Latissimus dorsi transfers are indicated in large supraspinatus and infraspinatus tears. The best candidate is a young laborer. With this option, you will attach the latissimus dorsi to the cuff muscles, subscapularis, and the greater trochanter. Post-op, you will brace immobilized for 6 weeks in 45 degrees of abduction and 30 degrees of external rotation. Nerves at risk include the radial nerve, which runs along the anterior surface of the latissimus dorsi, approximately 3 centimeters medial to the humeral insertion. Remember, this is at risk during tenotomy. Another nerve at risk is the posterior branch of the axillary nerve, which runs in the deep fascia of the posterior deltoid. This is at risk during passage of the tendon deep to the deltoid to the subacromial space. As far as biologic and synthetic graft reconstruction, there is some recent evidence of improved outcomes with the use of xenograft, allograft, or synthetic patches for massive cuff tears. However, there are limited human and long-term studies. Xenografts are from bovine dermis or intestine, however keep in mind there is mixed functional outcomes and graft incorporation. Allograft from human skin or muscular fascia can be used and there is some evidence of good function and survival in the short term. As far as synthetics, there is concern for foreign body reaction and there have also been mixed functional results. Finally, a lateral acromionectomy has historic significance only. It's contraindicated due to a high complication rate. Now, let's finish this review session by talking about some surgical complications of rotator cuff surgery, which include recurrence-slash-repair failure, deltoid detachment, acromioclavicular pain, axillary nerve injury, suprascapular nerve injury, infection, stiffness, and pneumothorax. As far as recurrence-slash-repair failure, the most common cause of failed rotator cuff repair is failure of cuff tissue to heal, resulting in suture pullout from the repaired tissue. Patient risk factors for repair failure include patient age greater than 65 years old, which is a risk factor for non-healing of rotator cuff repairs and subsequent failure. Other risk factors include large tear size, which is defined as greater than 5 centimeters, muscle atrophy, diabetes, smokers, tear retraction medial to the glenoid, poor compliance with the post-op protocol, and keep in mind that there have been no differences in clinical outcomes or healing with early versus delayed motion protocols. Other risk factors of recurrence-slash-repair failure include multiple tendons involved and concomitant AC and or biceps procedures performed at the time of repair. As far as treatment for recurrence-slash-repair failure, revision rotator cuff repair versus a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty are options. Variables to consider when choosing revision rotator cuff repair versus reverse total shoulder arthroplasty includes patient age, and remember older age favors a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, other variables to consider include etiology of the retear, quality of the tissue slash MRI findings, and static proximal humeral migration, which favors reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Deltoid detachment is a complication seen with an open rotator cuff repair approach. Suprascapular nerve injury may occur with aggressive mobilization of the supraspinatus during repair. Infection has a less than 1% incidence, and usually common skin flora include staph aureus, strep and P. acnes. Propionobacterium acnes is the most commonly implicated organism in delayed or indolent cases. Stiffness is another potential complication. Keep in mind that physical therapy and guided early range of motion exercises are not shown to reduce stiffness one year postoperatively. Finally, pneumothorax can be a complication of regional anesthesia that is interscaling or supraclavicular block or the arthroscopy itself. That's all for this review about rotator cuff tears. Hopefully that was helpful. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes.